going to jump on to uh, one of the overview things. It's always good to know on a book to, to challenge yourself to try to figure out the background and when was it written is a good one to know because there's a historical thing going on. This author is writing to address a problem or problems or situation that has to do with the historical background of where these people are. So the other piece of that is, who are these people? Who is the audience? Who is he writing to? Because that's part of the context as well, not just the historical time period, but also who is he writing to and what, are the, what challenges are they facing? You can get some idea by the content of the book, but it's always good to be able to put that together with figuring out where it was. And so, and then finally, the other, the other thing that's perhaps maybe less critical, who, who wrote it? Who wrote this book? So we're gonna start with who wrote this book and field some, uh, does anybody have a, a strong, firm opinion about that? Who's the author? Somebody, somebody just pop that off. Inform us. Yeah, uh, I think both of those guys have been uh, have been suggested. Uh, Martin Luther thought it was Apollos. Hmm. The, uh, but did, did all three of them know Timothy pretty well? I don't know about Apollos. The one thing, there's a one piece of it. Um, um, <clears throat> I guess, I guess one of the things about authorship is um, he says in there, I, for, I don't have the scripture reference, but he, he says in there that he, that he wasn't an eyewitness, that, that it was eyewitnesses who communicated to him. And uh, one reason, Paul, Paul has been the strongest contender for most people, but one of the strong reasons to not agree that it's Paul is because there's two or three other books where Paul strongly says that he was taught by the Lord himself. So he would not be saying that, he would not be admitting or saying that he was not taught, that he wasn't taught by the Lord because he says differently in other books. So I think that's the strongest argument against Paul. The other thing about Paul that they, that people um, say probably different than is has a couple other things is Paul almost every other epistle Paul introduces himself and he identifies himself and this is one where he doesn't identify himself so that's an anomaly and then uh, one of the authors I read brought up two or three things that, that the, the subject material of Melchizedek and the sacrificial system and uh, that those are not really topics that Paul brings up anywhere else really and so you, many of his other letters you see overlap in his content as he's teaching people. You see this 
you see overlap many times, and he says it different ways, and he expounds on it, but nonetheless you see a lot of parallels because he's the author of several of the epistles. Here you have content that is totally other, and so that's another reason why it probably isn't Paul. The a strong contender, I think, is Apollos. Mm -hmm. uh, anybody want to anybody want to propose Apollos and give us your reasons? So I have a question: Was Apollos a Jew? Yes, I believe he was. Yeah, I think Apollos was a Jew. But he was not uh, one of the apostles, and he really, he never met Jesus. But he was a strong advocate. He was a strong orator. He was a very strong person that would go into the synagogue and debate with the Jews about who Jesus was. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe somebody else does. It, was he Jewish or was he a Gentile? Well, if he was Hellenistic too, right? Well, she said uh, since his name was Apollos, but that, that's a Greek name. Yeah. Right? Well, Hellenistic is Greek, right? right? So there was the Greek cultured Jews. Yeah, there was a lot of, that's a good point. We don't really know why his name is Apollos. Maybe they were second, third generation Hellenistic Jews. The reason they call them Hellenistic Jews, we know from the content of this book that this author assumed, like, like they said in the video, that the, that the people receiving this were probably Jewish in background primarily because there's so much, there's more here on the Old Testament than almost any other book. So a Gentile would have no clue what was going on. So the audience is probably primarily Jewish. We're skipping the audience away from author, but... But the other thing about it is, is it was written in um, Greek. So these people, and from what I read from uh, my study, was that this is one of the highest, most sophisticated forms of Greek. Uh, Luke in the Gospels is kind of like the gold standard for the Gospels of, of the high class or highbrow Greek. And apparently this was very sophisticated Greek. So you have an assumption that they were Jewish in understanding, but also culturally Greek. And that may explain why Apollos, I think he was Jewish, because he used to go into synagogues and debate. And uh, although Gentiles were not excluded from the synagogue, I'm not sure they were allowed to debate, but I don't know the answer to that. He, he was uh, Jewish and Alexandrian by birth. Dan looked it up and said, found that Apollos was Jewish and Alexandrian by birth. Acts 18, yeah. And so he was well-schooled uh, in the scriptures in Priscilla. Um, he was acquainted with the baptism of John, mm -hmm. and he was very persuasive with Priscilla and Aquila, heard him took him aside and explained him the way of God more accurately. So they were the ones who kind of mentored him. Hey, by the way, after John the Baptist, there's another guy who came. Yeah. His name is Jesus. I always got the impression of Apollos that he was like this super talented mm -hmm. debater, mm -hmm. but he was schooled by Aqu uh, Aquila and Priscilla. They had content, they had walked with God, but he, ha he had the ability to uh, think on his feet, let's say. 
Well, I want to move on, but uh, there were two, there were three things. We know there's a Hellenistic Jew. The other thing, we know he has to be a mature believer somewhere. It's in uh, Hebrews 5.13 because he's distinguishing. He's telling them that, that you people ought to be not babes anymore. And you need to move past these elementary things. So the guy who's writing this is very well-schooled in the scripture, probably a very mature believer. And I would say uh, that he has a heart of a pastor because his purpose, he tells in the, in the last chapter, right near the end, um, verse 22 of chapter 13, he says, I want you to know, um, sorry, brothers, I urge you to bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. So he has a whole lot more that he would like to download to them, but... Um, they're not ready. Okay, let's let's move on to another. Um, who was the audience? Are there any clues that you think of having read this that give you an idea of audience? We've already covered the fact that they that they were probably Hellenistic Jews, and that's a big piece of it. What what other things can you describe about them or their life situation? Did they did they blank out? Did you lose them? Uh, yeah, for some reason. I was looking at it going, that screen doesn't look right from here. And then I went up and I'm like, where are they? I, I, yeah, I didn't notice because I don't see any faces there. Yeah. Okay. Of course, the drawing was, was rejected by a moderator. Way to go, Dan. So, should we be, should we end this at five after, ten after? Um, what should we do? I'm good to stay as long as right, you want to go, Len. So I don't know where we got cut off, but um, what else can you say about? Is there anything that you noticed? Like, what was their life situation with this audience? Could you describe, um, even though we don't know exactly who they are, what kind of thing? What's what are they going through? Can you guys hear? Can you guys hear on Jitsi? Yeah, we hear. Okay. Any thoughts on that? Persecution. Go ahead. Persecution. Yep. They've gone through persecution, and there's evidence in the scripture without going there right away that, that there was evidence in the past that they that they weathered it fairly well. And the author compliments them on that. And he also is talking to them about their present struggle. And he's warning them about their future persecution. So there's this past, present, future thing going on with persecution. That's a very big part of the context of this um, chapter. What else? Anybody have anything else? 
Did you cover that they're Jewish already? Did we say that? Yeah, they're they're probably Jewish, and they have they probably are Hellenistic Jews, meaning that they were they're not in they're probably not in Jerusalem. They're probably Greek, heavily steeped in Greek culture. Well, part of it is this, this was probably, you know, like it's probably something that was written and sent to people, but it was also probably read to the congregation. Um, but this was written in Greek. So um, if it was a sophisticated argument like it is written in a language that wasn't their native language, that would be hard for them. So people think that, that they were Greek, you know, um, but there's not really proof of that. You know, uh, one side note is, you know when all the times when you see Paul going to the synagogue and you see Jesus teaching in the synagogue, well, the synagogue were actually um, set up because the Jews were displaced out of Palestine. Mm -hmm. The synagogue was, was a substitute for the temple. And so whenever you see the word synagogue, what you have is you have an element of one part of the Jewish diaspora or the people that are scattered. They were scattered out of Jerusalem and out of Palestine. And for a Jew, their identity is anytime that they are not on the land that was given to their forefather Abraham, they are scattered abroad. So every place you see synagogue, you could say to yourself, that's part of the Jewish diaspora or the people that have been scattered out of their homeland. Mm -hmm. So in that kind of a context, um, uh, these people, we, it doesn't say that they're, in, that they're teaching in the synagogue, or if it does, I don't know that. So I guess your answer to your question, ask your question again. <laughs> I think I forgot it in my roundabout. How do we know they were Hellenistic? How do we know they're Hellenistic? The short answer is because this was written and probably read to them or spoken to them in Greek. And it's a complicated argument that they would have to have understood the Greek language very, very well. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that they couldn't have if they were a Jewish scholar. They probably would understand Greek very well also. Say again. But wasn't, wasn't um, Greek the, the language of the Yep. Uh, Alexander the Great took over? Yes, that's true. I guess you could say there's no there's no there's no definitive proof of that. Um, but there but it be, but um, I think from what I from what I could read, people said they're pretty sure that these people were not were not um, in Jerusalem, they were not in, probably not in their homeland, because at the very end, he's, uh, one, of the, one of the admonitions that he's exhorting them is, do not listen to strange teachings. And there were a lot of strange teachings that were circulating, but they wouldn't have been circulating so much in the home base in the, you know, where the Apostle John was the elder, 
that those strange teachings would have been suppressed. So out on the frontier someplace, these strange teachings were starting to compromise the church. And so we think that this was a congregation of Hellenistic Jews somewhere uh, out of one of the larger, not in Jerusalem anyway. But I don't think there's any proof, so uh, I'd be worthy of investigating a little more. Okay. Well, the thing is, there's there's evidence. There's a little bit of evidence that it could be. It could have been written by Luke. I suppose Luke wrote a, a very um, kind of a detailed and sophisticated presentation of, of the to Theophilus, right? Mm -hmm. But. I didn't actually research, all, run all those down. Actually, Origen, one of the uh, church fathers, said he 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 said the only one who knows who wrote Hebrews is God Himself. <laughs> so, um, well, he was he dated back pretty early, and if yeah. he didn't know, that's pretty mysterious. Yeah, they right? they used to think Paul did, but that's fallen out of vogue. My, my personal preference, uh, and I'm not saying this because there's overwhelming evidence, but I like Apollos because it's a sophisticated argument that would, that would be targeted on the educated Jewish people, mm -hmm. and he would probably be making these kind of this talk again with people that are very learned, and he was known, and the little we know about him from scripture, that he was known to be a good orator. And so this would suit him very, very well as a moral argument to be made in the, in the uh, temple mm -hmm. with Jewish leaders. But that's only conjecture. Okay, let's, let's go on a little bit. Um, what would you say, let's go to um, when it was written. This is an interesting thing. Anybody, anybody, pick up any clues on when it when it is written from the from the Hebrews or what you know about the book? Seventy A.D. Okay, how does that factor in here? So he talks about, if everybody heard that, he talks about the temple as an existing, ongoing, year after year. And so the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. Mm -hmm. So it's sometime probably before 70 AD. Anything else? The other, the other clue that people are referenced here is a little more obscure. Well, Timothy was alive at the time. Okay, it has to do with Timothy. Uh, that's why I was just, when it, whenever it was written, it had to be when Timothy, in the window of time when Timothy was commissioned for ministry and, and uh, before the temple, I guess, was destroyed. So that, um, and yeah, in Hebrews 13, 23 is the verse. It says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. 
If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. So Timothy was released from prison, but there's no mention of Timothy ever being in prison anywhere else in the scripture. Well, so Timothy would have been in prison after and been released after this was written. And so 2 Timothy was the last book that Apostle Paul ever wrote in about 65 AD. So it narrows it down to a time that was, um, of course it's an argument out of, just because it's not mentioned that Timothy was in, script, uh, in prison doesn't mean that 100% that he wasn't. But that's pretty good evidence since we know a lot about Timothy from Paul's writings. So it narrows it down to between 65 and 70 AD. Now that's important because uh, what's going on historically in 65 to 70 AD, if we go back, remember that the Jewish, or I mean that the Christians in the beginning were kind of perceived even by the Jews to be a sect. Mm -hmm. They, I mean it was the Jewish Messiah, they didn't really catch the full import of Jesus in the second covenant. So Christians were thought of as a Jewish sect for many years, for quite a few years actually. Mm -hmm. But as you move towards, uh, actually it's in 70 AD, it was official by the Pharisees that they uh, kicked Christians out of, I don't think Christians were welcome any longer mm -hmm. to come to the uh, um, Tabernacle? Not Tabernacle. Temple. The, the, uh, the, um, huh? synagogue. The synagogue. The synagogue. Oh. The, so they didn't want Christians in their Jewish institutions is the way I, I read the mm -hmm. comment. So somewhere between um, you know Jesus uh, and the very early church with the apostles in say 30, 35 AD to 70 AD, that 30 year period or 35 year period it went from being welcomed by the Jews to being unwelcomed by the Jews. Mm -hmm. And then in, in the 64 AD, Nero, who was, the, who was the emperor of Rome in 64 AD, blamed the Christians for the fire set in Rome. Mm -hmm. And so Christian persecution was heightened. Mm -hmm. So now Christians are no longer welcome. And so what I think you find here is this book is written 65 to 70 AD, right during the time of escalating persecution. And you actually see that in the references in here, because he talks about past persecution, and there was a past persecution in about 49 AD, and then he's talking about, he's talking about, they're seeing it being ramped up. Mm -hmm. Christians are no longer welcome in the synagogue, mm -hmm. and Nero, in, as a Roman citizen, you're gonna be persecuted. And this is why this exhortation, the one that I was mentioning mm -hmm. before, the exhortation is to hold firm. There's five of these very firm warnings about not abandoning Christ. Mm -hmm. And he lays out this ex exquisite, detailed proof of why Jesus is so much superior to everything in the Old Testament. And he makes a huge argument from the lesser to the greater that if, that if the law and the prophets we're speaking the truth, then certainly Jesus is God's better promises, so hold firm. And he also gives this, this long list of people in chapter 11, the faith chapter, 
And it's like all of these people mm. were faithful. Mm. Mm-hmm. All of these people had promises that were not as good as yours. Mm. So he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Mm-hmm. So he's just made this proof text that Jesus is much, much superior to everything in the Old Testament. Surely, if your mm-hmm. ancestors have held on faithfully, you can hold on faithfully in the face of persecution. That's good. And that so, is a big piece of it. Then, when, so I'm just, now the dates are like floating around in my head, but I'm wondering, as far as the apostles, the early apostles go, and their martyrdoms, because they were all martyred except for John. John was exiled. When were they martyred? Were they martyred after this? Pretty well, much. Peter, Paul was, they believe, martyred in 62 AD. Paul? Paul. So he would have been martyred already by the time this book was being written. Yeah, and the, the things that I read, the, I've seen 62. 62 would have been when he would have been released. So if he had any other missionary journey after his Roman imprisonment, it would have been immediately after. The thing that I read said that actually Paul was probably died in 65 AD. And Peter died shortly thereafter. So Peter and Paul were gone in the mid-60s. So right about the time time this was being written, they were being martyred. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then the other ones maybe were after. Does anybody else know when the other apostles were martyred? It'd just be interesting to think about that in context to this exhortation to stay faithful. You know, mm-hmm. because some of them might have been martyred already. Mm-hmm. And so there was probably a great amount of fear. And like you said, in the context of the beginning, like the temptation to, you know, be um, kind of what a closet believer or yeah. um, was so strong. And anyways... I think uh, I have a little more that I can go on, but I don't want to hold people. I don't want to hold people beyond. So if you need to go, just just click off and go. I'll have a few more things. If somebody wants to stay, I'll I'll continue for a little bit more. But be free, <laughs> and thank you. So um, what I wanted to go through was it's interesting that. Um, you can't get this from reading the book itself. I had to get it from people who are scholars. They, they said that the um, language, the language in the book is so powerful that, that it is, um, when, and it's translated a lot of times, let us do this, let us do that. But those are really powerful exhortations. And then there's also imperatives like do this, do this, and don't do that. And those are so powerful. And then in the middle of that, you have these five warnings that are almost like, you know, he gets done with a piece of here's here's who Jesus is, here's why he's superior, and here is a severe warning. And two of two or three of them are quite severe. And it's almost like you're going along, and then all of a sudden. They're, they're, he's like slapping them awake. Mm. And I think the reason he's doing that is because of the verse that he said earlier. He said, you should be mature in here, but you're still needing milk. Mm. 
So the, he's basically saying, "There's persecution coming. You are going to need to. You are going to need to stand tall and stand firm. You're going to need everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm giving you the unvarnished truth about Jesus. And based on that knowledge, it gives you enough to stand. But you guys got to snap out of it. Well, so he has this very strong language that he's he's verbally slapping them awake. Mm -hmm. And you don't, it's hard to see that as much as they did, would have seen it in, the, yeah. in their language. Any comment on that? Just that it's so powerful for our day. I just feel like we need that slap awake because likely persecution is coming. And are we even close to being ready? No, we're mostly still milk. Oh, we're still on milk, mostly, you, you know? Did you, did you notice the things that he called milk? I looked at him and thought, Whoa. Hmm, there's some of those I don't know much about. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it's, we're kind of in the, I'm kind of in the milk toast stage. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, let me check, let me, uh, the other thing I'll just point out that I found very interesting personally as you see, the first 10 chapters is the evidence, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Just look at the overall structure. The first 10 chapters are the evidence. And then there's uh, chapter 11, which is faith. I think chapter 12 is more on hope. Chapter 13 is exhortation, mm -hmm. which is really what he's getting to. Based on all this new evidence, you must mm. not pay attention to these false teachings. And I read a little bit, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, about, um, and, it, and it lent a lot, of, a lot of insight on Hebrews because Malchiz, there's a book out, something about the Melchizedek, I think, that was part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so they think that that was a very, <coughs> that was a sect that was quite off the beaten track. Okay. And there were other people like that, that people were just secluding themselves because the Romans, the Christians were no longer, um, Christians were being persecuted, right. so they were gathering in small clumps and getting off the beaten track, and then when they were separated from the main group, they started getting weird ideas. Yeah. And so these are starting to circulate, and, and the writer here is saying, I think he's saying, don't compromise with the Judaizers, because Jesus is, Jesus is far superior. Mm -hmm. You can't go back there. Mm -hmm. You cannot compromise there. And he's saying, don't listen to these false teachings that teach you. And one of the things in the false teaching was the elevated view of angels. And it's uh, why the angels was picked right off the bat to show that Jesus was superior to angels. Because Jesus being a human being and, and that his humanity would have been such more evident to people who knew him personally, mm -hmm. flesh and blood Jesus, mm -hmm. that these angelic beings the author is actually showing why they are inferior mm -hmm. to the Son. Mm -hmm. They are not the Son of God. They are mm -hmm. servants. But yet, you know, in the history of Ju the Jewish people, the Mosaic Law was, was given through an angel, and that was a case that the author had to make. And apparently at that time, the view of angels was a very exalted. And you even see in John, in Revelation, he's tempted to bow down to this angel, and the mm -hmm. angel tells him not to. Right. You know? And so... Interesting. Uh, yeah, so... All right, last... What does the... What does the milk... Uh, what was the question there at the end? The milk? Mm-hmm. What does the milk stage? 
Uh, where is that? Um, are you asking where that is? No, no, I'm asking, you know, if you study what would be representing in the Christianity. Oh, he says in there what, what is representing. Does anybody know where that verse is? That you ought to be, I think it's in chapter 5. I think the end of 5. See which verse that is? Spiritual immaturity. Yeah, so verse 12. Okay. It says, in fact, though by, the, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Mm -hmm. I thought he had more on mm -hmm. what those elementary teachings. I must be confusing. Well, maybe maybe it's in chapter, chapter six. six. First paragraph. Okay. Okay. Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about baptism, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, and God permitting you to do so. So he's laying out a lot of things that are basic Christianity and calling them milk. Right? Well, yeah. Yeah. So pretty much the church is, the church is still, still on the bottom. Yeah. The church is still... The whole church right now is on milk about the laying out of hands. Right, maybe, maybe. You know, <laughs> it's so true. What's that? Yeah, pacifier, empty. Yeah. I didn't pacifier. Know that. I said maybe even diluted milk. Right? <laughs> yeah. We don't even go very serious into these things, but yeah. But yeah, when you think about, you know, what is he trying to get at with Melchizedek and the high priest and all that? It's like he's. The last thing I'll leave you with is some internal internal structure to the way this author presents his argument. It's very logical mm -hmm. all the way through. You see a lot of therefores and fors. So he lays something out and then he's therefore. So he's drawing a conclusion. So the basic theme structure for the first ten chapters is a very logical presentation of evidence of why Jesus is superior or why the New Covenant is more perfect or why the New Covenant is based on better promises. Mm -hmm. it's, it's evidence, therefore. Evidence, therefore. The other thing you see is you see this comparison that's almost binary. It's, it's Moses is this, Jesus is better. Right, right. Angels are this, the Son is better. Mm -hmm. Old Covenant is this, the New Covenant is better. So there's better, more perfect, mm -hmm. bigger, grander. Mm -hmm. It's that comparison that permeates through the argument part. And then I would say that um, uh, there's um, these are sophisticated, there's three, I, there's Greek words for these, there's, there's three kinds of what they, what they call rhetorical, um, mm, tools, <laughs> that's not the word they use, but there are rhetorical, um, 
approaches that, that a person that was well-educated and well-schooled would realize, mm -hmm. oh, he's, one of them was laying out a list of things, like that's what he does in Hebrews 11, the whole list of people. Mm -hmm. That's one form of argument where he builds a case by putting out there something that is not, you can't argue with the fact these people live by faith, and he lays out one after the other, after the other, after the other. Mm -hmm. And it's, you can't argue with that. Mm -hmm. The other thing is a form of argument where he argues from the lesser to the greater. That's another thing that he does. Um, he, he does that in several places. And if you're paying attention, you'll see that time and again. That mm -hmm. He starts off with something that is not objectionable. And he'll, he'll say, well, if this is true, and, and everybody it starts right with the law or something in the Torah mm -hmm. is true, then, and he builds on that and says, if that's true, then this is more true. Mm -hmm. And so he builds, he, it's a rhetorical type of debating style that they would have recognized in the, probably the mm -hmm. synagogue, the people who are used to listening to the way people argue. And the other was a kind of um, uh, list where mm -hmm. he would not just list in sequence, but list as evidence, like why Jesus was superior to Melchizedek. He'd give multiple reasons mm -hmm. that are logical, but they're, they're like a composite around his central point. Right. So it's like a cluster of ideas mm -hmm. that support the main idea. Yeah. So you have one case, you have a list of things that build. One is a cluster of ideas that support his main theme. Mm -hmm. um, and I forgot the other one. So that's so the, that's kind of, I love that about it because that actually makes it look like Paul. Mm -hmm. And you see the structure, if we, there's evidence for Paul also that I don't think is compelling. Mm -hmm. But the evidence for Paul is you see this case where almost all of Paul's letter, he lays out the theology mm -hmm. in the first several chapters. And then he lays out the how this should change your attitudes and your behavior in the last chapter. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the format here. Mm -hmm. He lays out in the first 12. Actually, what he does is he lays out the evidence of knowledge, mm -hmm. and then he factors in, and these are examples, which is a different kind of evidence. Is mm -hmm. You can do this, mm -hmm. but it's a different kind of evidence. And then he concludes by saying, you need to hang firm. Don't listen to those false teachings mm -hmm. and stay obedient in the midst of mounting persecution. Wow. Yeah. So sobering. I don't yeah. know. I just feel sobered from it, you know, like yeah. sobered for our day because we're not in heavy persecution right now, but I feel like we need to get off milk <laughs> and get grounded and be more ready, you know? I mean, I just... I'm thinking now I want to look up when everyone was martyred because if people were getting killed right then, you know, if Peter and Paul had just died and then this letter comes out and he's like, you better stay faithful, you know, how like sobering would that be? You know, I'm just thinking it, it, it had to be so almost terrifying when the apostles started getting martyred because... The church was such a fledgling new church. And they're probably all going, what are we going to do without these leaders? You know? Like sometimes they even think that about people in our day. Like what are we going to do when Mike Bickle dies, you know? <laughs> how are we going to make it, you know? 
But it's like how much more, like the apostles who were with Jesus, who saw him, who had the eyewitness, you know, what that must have felt like for the early church when they started getting martyred. The one that impacts me, it's kind of a parallel, maybe a parallel thought to me, the one that's uh, sobering. When you look at, when you look at things that are going on now that people are like, well, that's not the truth. There are variations and shades of what people think are true in, let's say, the political arena right now. But that political arena is also mysteriously tied to people's faith positions. And suddenly you have people that are, that you know, you know for sure, this person is a walking with the Lord. They love the Lord Jesus. This person walking with the Lord and loves the Lord Jesus. Mm. But their version of what's true is, is very, is different. It's confused. Right. And so when you have pressure of one kind or another, in our case in this country, I'm not a know-it-all on this. I'm just throwing out an idea. Yeah. So please don't. I'm not saying I know it all, but I. What you have is you have two. You have the just the simple pressure of political views mm -hmm. and what you want to be true mm -hmm. in your heart, or what you're afraid is going to happen if you don't mm -hmm. do thus and such. Those pressures subconsciously cause people to perceive the truth differently. Well. And that is what he's getting at here. Yeah. He is saying the pressure, the pressure to conform in order to not have to move, not have to lose your land, not have to be in prison, not have to be beaten, that the reality of, of the consequences will change your perception of what is true. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we have going on in our country right now, well. is perceptions of what's true are very distorted by what people want to be true because of the things that are going on that's not visible to them, mm -hmm. all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what he's getting at when he says, don't listen to these false ideas and do not compromise mm -hmm. on Jesus. Well, yeah. Isa wants to go to Grandma's church. And Grandma said, oh, your dad doesn't want to come to my church because we have lesbian pastor. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the same thing? And Isa said, oh, me and Mommy are going to go because we love you, Grandma. Mm -hmm. But why should I encourage her to do that? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, love is more important than theology. Mm. And for me, laying that standard for her that it's okay because it's grandma. Mm -hmm. It's you, you you see what I'm getting? Yeah. I do. I think uh, this is where I actually have a very similar situation um, because I belong to a I don't belong I haven't joined but I'm very attracted to a church that has a theological position on something that I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's substantial. It's like, if you think the scripture says this is wrong, it's not like you can just compromise and say it's okay. You might, might not cause you to break fellowship with somebody over it, but if you're training up a child on what's true and what's not true, exactly. you have to be faithful to 
what is the truth, and it's the truth. So I think that that's not a place to, personally, I don't think that's a place to compromise. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay to say, I think it would, I, this is, again, personal. I don't know if this is right, but personally, I could find myself saying, I think that's not what the scripture teaches, and because grandma's going there today, I will go there or allow you to go there because you're going with your grandma, but this is not what the scripture says. Mm -hmm. And grandma's not, you know, grandma's not really right on everything. And so- uh, She was trying to teach them her theology. I said- Oh, I see. I oh. said, you stop. Yeah. With mm -hmm. my children, you don't go there. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So I think that's I'd right. I'd have to have that nose-to-nose confrontation. Yeah. yeah. And she's respecting, but every time there is a little something, the serpent speaks two languages, and it's like, okay, I'm gonna step over. Mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, I have to be very careful every time. Yeah. That'll create but confusion. Uh, yeah. I would just what I would mention to her is if you wanna go, like, uh, to a theater or like they have so uh, just to support her, you know, consider going just for like a club, like nothing in a bad way. Mm -hmm. But not as where you feed yourself because it's another kind. Mm -hmm. Because it's truth is truth. And they're very strong about, you know, this. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all I have. Mm -hmm. that's great. Yeah, it's that's just so, so, so good. Thank you. Wonderful. You're welcome. I don't know the full answer about the Hellenistic Jew. <laughs> the one thing I will say is I found out when I was doing the, my research that there were so many more Jews spread around in the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. They actually considered the diaspora all the way back to uh, when the Assyrians in 722 removed the Israelites from the land and took them to Persia. Mm -hmm. And then they came back. And then the Babylonians in the northern kingdom in 523 or whatever it was, was another, was another removal. So these, when they actually allowed them to come back to um, Palestine or their home country, some remnants stayed in the country where they were. Mm -hmm. And so you have a diaspora that was spread throughout the Middle East you had a strong concentration in Egypt, in Syria, in Italy, all around. So a lot of the language that I was getting to before, when you hear the word synagogue, it's really talking about, uh, in order to have a synagogue, they had to have 10 adult males. Mm -hmm. and, that, and they could constitute a new synagogue if they had 10 adult Jewish males. They had a lot of synagogues in Romania, Bulgaria, yeah. that area. So there were a lot of displaced Jews that lived within this uh, Greek culture. Mm -hmm. So maybe the point that you made, and I think it was a good one, is if that was the language of the land, then maybe they were well-versed in Greek as would, even more so than they would be in Hebrew. I think that's a good point. Paul is gone and Peter is gone and, and 
And Timothy is, is in prison, but now Timothy is a new leadership. He's just got out of prison. Yeah. Is right in. Maybe it was And so this could well be, you know, a, a later period book um, that that describes conditions of the day, and mm-hmm. I guess that's one big takeaway. The, the other big takeaway is I just hadn't really seen it as a book to encourage people during times of persecution. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, even though it, the faith chapter is so yeah, that large, was for, yeah, yeah that, that I get, but I just hadn't really seen it as something where we might be able to actually use this as a as a manual ourselves. Yeah, and then start getting uh, heated. Yeah. The, the other thing, the other thing that I could, that I was kind of trying to draw a timeline and just have a picture of it, is I saw like the Jews and the Christians. Christians were a sect of the Jews back, at, let's say, at the point of Jesus' ascension. Mm-hmm. And he says, go into the world and preach the gospel. But they used to go to the synagogue. But they were Jesus followers now. But their theological understanding of the covenants wasn't really developed. So by the time you get here, you're at 65 AD, you have the persecution which is driving some of this because the Jews are saying, you're not part of us. And you have this this teaching going on where Christians and Jews are separating and it's based upon a proper theology. And and persecution's actually helping to purify uh, the church. Yeah. Even though it's not mentioned directly. Oh, it's always. Yeah. But that, in this case, that's what it's doing because he lays out this case where, you know, even where, uh, let's say Peter, when he went back to Antioch, uh, Paul goes down and confronts Peter because when the when the uh, when the friends of James came to Antioch, then Peter turned back and started requiring them to follow Jewish customs, mm. and Paul went down and confronted him to his face. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a case where. where it was blurred. And this Mm -hmm. is by the Apostle Peter. So what we have here is really a very powerful case where the separation of Christianity and Judaism into two covenants is the most profound. And there's no, and he's saying that it's not, don't let, and here's where you can hear Paul echoing, don't be taken by what you eat or drink. Don't let this. Don't let this little rule be this. Don't let that. Mm-hmm. And he's saying it's by grace you're saved through faith. Mm-hmm. And if it's and grace is an undeserved gift. Mm-hmm. And if you have to earn it by a custom, mm-hmm. you're actually denigrating or yeah. you're denigrating the free gift of God. You're making it something cheap that you think you can pay for. Well. And so that's kind of cool. Yeah. This this book right here is like a in the, it's like a web.